0: Hey guys, it's Nathan this is episode number 21 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood
1: Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Hey guys, welcome to the show.
0: I hope you're doing well. Thanks for tuning in as always. uh, When you listen to this, hopefully, (laughs) if it's all going well, I'll still be on vacation in Hawaii or somewhere around the world. uh, Relaxing and I'll be back in to record more episodes of the show at the start of May. Uh, so nothing much for me to report on that uh, side of things, so let's just get into it. Uh, for this episode, I spoke to a wonderful guy called Kay High. Kay and I had a really amazing, deep conversation. It went all over the place, talking about life, death, uh, money, success, everything. Kay actually rose to the top of the finance industry on Wall Street, uh, making a lot of money, but in a pretty savage industry. Uh, so... He decided to get out of that business and live the more simple life and now writes uh, for a website called Quartz and has his own website, Rad Reads, that uh, he produces all sorts of awesome content about living a more meaningful life, especially for uh, high achievers and high performers and people that are in industries like finance. And he's uh, been called by CNN the Oprah for Millennials which is a pretty cool endorsement, and I can see why. He's a deep thinker, he's an intelligent guy, and he gave a lot of incredible insights in this interview. Uh, I start when I ask Kay to tell me about his Cambodian parents, what that was like being raised by them in New York. So without further ado, enjoy this very personal conversation with the powerful Kay Hyde.
1: Hi. I was born in New York in 1979, and my parents had immigrated from Cambodia via France in the early 70s. And uh, we actually grew up in the East Village, so kind of in the heart of kind of the co- counterculture movement of the 80s in New York City. But um, I didn't experience any of that. We had a very kind of the, the cliched tiger mom Uh, very protective parents. And it was really head down, do your work, um, kind of deferred gratification and uh, prepare, prepare for your future. And uh, that worked for me. Um, I was very self-motivated. I was very hardworking. Uh, My dad's favorite aphorism was we may not be the smartest, but we're the hardest working and um and that carried me into a career that carried me to to university at Yale in Connecticut where i studied computer science and economics and really the the the, the theme of my childhood was um i was really um kind of i was really awkward i was very skinny um i was bow, I was, I am bow legged. So like when I walk, like my, my legs kind of like splay a little like to off to the sides. I wasn't very cool. Uh, I was really good at math, uh, all that kind of nerdy stuff, magic, the gathering. And I'll come back to my finance career, or I'll I'll segue into my finance career. But I, I I was really an outsider. um, And I was seeking acceptance in kind of like, a cool group of kids. And I was friends with a cool group. Everyone liked me. But I very much was an outsider. And I think also, I reflect on this as, as an adult now, but I think the Asian upbringing, you're so focused on achievement at the expense of identity. So I was kind of insecure, seeking Acceptance with no sense of identity, (laughs) so that's kind of like and and like relatively happy, you know, just like kind of average happy kid. You know, we we lived very middle class, but that was very much what my kind of the first eighteen years of my life felt like. I I I really joke for the movie American Pie. Yeah. So like that that was like me and my friends. Um, we're like, oh, we're gonna go to college and lose our virginities and it's gonna be awesome, even though like. (laughs) We had like probably kissed like one girl in 18 years. <laughs> um, and and, and it very much that, that was kind of, we were those guys, um, that this group of, of guys. But what I realized very quickly is, I think today you would call it a hacker sensibility. Uh, back then it didn't really have a name, but I was very quick at figuring things out. And, like my dad said, i wasn't i definitely i never was the smartest and now, as a thirty seven year old i I know for damn sure I'm far from the smartest but i but I always had a knack for kind of figuring out how the system worked and and kind of using it to my advantage so very good example was probably when I was thirteen or so, I realized that comic books had market values. Uh, and they were in uh they were priced in this book that came out once a month, basically like a stock that that had monthly uh pricing and I kind of observed what the trends were that would drive the comic book prices up or down and and so for example if a if someone was featured like uh cable was featured in newman's eighty seven when cable's first issue came out as a standalone series, there was a high likelihood that that number one issue would do really well. Spawn was another example, Youngbloods. And so I would go and buy like 20 of them. Uh, And as soon as they popped, then I would sell them. Uh, And so I I just kind of like figured these little things out. I taught myself HTML when I was 16 and I was making hundreds of dollars a week uh, coding simple web web pages. And so that was, so in hindsight, it was like I was very much an outsider, but I realized that I could teach myself these tricks, and these tricks kind of like showed me like a pathway uh, towards uh, insider status or acceptance. And as I, I'll go, th- uh, I realized that you know we're, we're 10 minutes in and I haven't even left 18. No, but, that's uh, perfect. I love that the seeds of I,
0: entrepreneurship are sort of being planted here.
1: Yeah, they, they were, and but I was very risk averse until 35 years old. We'll come. We'll come back to that. <laughs> um, but every time, kind of throughout my life, and I think I'm in one of these phases currently. I figured something out that was a combination of like work ethic, I guess, like definitely like determination and and creativity and, and entrepreneurialism. And I doubled down on them and whatever that thing was, I achieved like a pretty, pretty good uh, success uh, doing that. So so that was I, I set like a really kind of elaborate uh, landscape <laughs> for uh, for my life from 18 to 37 and a half. But maybe I'll pause there for a second because I, I, I did throw out a lot at you.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. I'm actually interested to go right back to the start, your parents' journey from Cambodia to France and New York. What are they doing in Cambodia and what was sort of the,
1: the catalyst to get them to move? So my mom is half French, half Cambodian, and she bounced around between Cambodia and France in her childhood. And they were wealthier uh, and so kind of a multi-home uh, household. My dad was kind of sub-rural, right outside of relatively poor family, large family. He was one of the top students in his um, elementary and high school. And so he got a scholarship to study uh, accounting and law in Paris, I guess in like the mid-60s. As he was in school, in university, in, in France, he met my mom. And that's kind of the late 60s, uh, early 70s when it was when the Civil War was starting or, or flaring. And they, they met, they married in, in Paris. They came to the States. My dad worked for the UN. My mom was a teacher until she had my sister and I. And then she stayed at home for a good five, seven years. But they never went back because they never went back until... 2000 and 2000 and so the war ended in the late 70s I guess and it was still kind of tenuous um, but I think more importantly my dad most of his family was killed in the war wow. uh, so there was really no there was no reason to go back and on top of that there was a lot of, of pain in going back and on top of that, they, the, uh, the proverbial icing was that the political situation was still pretty unstable. My mom's family, on the other hand, um, because they were never really like, fully uh, anchored into Cambodia, and they were mixed, multi-race, um, multi-ethnic, um, they, they fared fine. So they were kind of unimpacted.
0: Un- well, wow, that's so, so interesting. And, and what's the relationship with Cambodia now? What's your relationship with Cambodia? Is it a strong part of your cultural influence or do you sort of more align
1: with the american uh, culture i identify very much as american i guess asian american i never really thought of anything of thought differently about it until actually um until this recent election that was the first time when i was like oh i maybe don't feel as american as i thought (laughs) as i thought i did but but i'm very very proud to be american uh i culturally identify uh, as an american we definitely recognized our cambodian and french uh, heritage i think the cambodian one was a little bit more with trepidation around the topic actually still to this day uh, which is why i can't Um, name the the specific dates. Uh, We haven't had a lot of uh, in-depth conversations uh, about kind of all of the movements and the specific events around the specific dates and catalysts, et cetera. So, and I think that it was there, but not very overtly. It wasn't something that we discussed often, and, and hence we didn't necessarily identify with it. And I think another big thing is that New York City actually doesn't have a lot of Cambodians, so the Cambodians are scattered around the country in the U.S. in very um, kind of random places like outside of Dallas and, and outside of Sacramento and the suburb of Massachusetts. Mostly what I found out later was around where there was a lot of missionaries, um, a lot of missionary work. But but New York didn't have a lot of Cambodian. Even to this day, there's two Cambodian restaurants in all of New York City, and they're run by they're run by by white individuals. So that was a, that was another uh, reason. But I, but I think if I really think back to it, I think and I, I know we'll talk about this in more detail. There's this especially with with Cambodian with, with Asian males. You know, there's just this like why why do we need to go there? mindset. You know, what, why should we approach a topic that's difficult, that's emotional, that's messy? You know, isn't, isn't it just easier to, to honor that part, but not kind of dig dig into it. And so I think there was, there was some of that as well. Uh, My personal relationship with Cambodia is I've been twice uh, really though, as tourist and very, very kind of scripted way. And so like going to see Angkor, you know, basically it was one of the two. And so I haven't really had the time or the, uh, uh, mental to really kind of go and, 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 and roam and wander and, and with, with a kid and a second on the way. I, I'm sure I'll have it one day. I just, I just don't know when that will actually be. Yeah. Although I, I, we will go back for, we will definitely go, um, I would say in the next five years.
0: Yeah. I just, uh, I find that that, that lineage, heritage topic is particularly fascinating. So I appreciate mm-hmm. you sharing that. Did you guys speak French at home at all?
1: We did. We grew up, uh, I grew up speaking, uh, speaking French, um, still, still fluent, uh, with a really, really shitty accent. <laughs> but my mom was, was very strict, strict about the French. They, my parents still speak French to each other. But, uh, so yeah, I actually grew up speaking French and when I got to, you know, amongst the things that, that made for a, for a challenging, a challenging strong, but uh, a challenging upbringing was that I showed up and my French was 10 times better than my English. And, and they put, they actually put me in, in English, ESL, English as a second language, even though I was like born and raised in, in New York city.
0: This immigrant story, isn't it? This kind of New York immigrant story of we're not the smartest, but we're going to work the hardest and we can make it mm. in America kind of thing. You sort of touched on it a little bit, but is that something that you're grateful for, that that hard work ethic, or is it something that you
1: came to resent a little bit? You know, if you had asked me that two years ago, I would have worn it, worn it as a badge of honor. I mean, to the, to the point we were out with, I was out with some old friends last night, and, and uh, a couple of nights ago, and and we were talking about taking red eyes back on from business trips, and how how my friends, the friends I was with, would never do that, and and I and I would say how I was that that guy in the office that was super passive aggressive, that's like what, like why didn't you take the red eye, like you could have saved a whole day of work, <laughs> versus you know, and so so I used to wear it, uh. As a badge of honor, um, and and you know when we complete the the, the journey, you know my, my, my life had a marked change in at the age of thirty five when I got off the corporate uh, treadmill. I think that I I achieved a lot. A lot in a relatively short period of time because of that work ethic. But I use the the word in the Buddhist sense, I suffered a lot. Um, I didn't suffer because I've always been in full health and financially, you know, stable uh, and and all kind of all the I lived all the benefits of kind of a high performer in modern society. Um, But I suffered in kind of the 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 monkey mind the comparing mind all like if you if you kind of took a sliver of my right. internal n- narrative and my internal emotions you would see quite a terrifying uh picture uh, of self-loathing self-doubt um extremely intense criticism much of with i wouldn't necessarily attribute that to to my immigrant upbringing but i think that it was the result of kind of constantly outworking the system, like doing that for basically your entire life. The best way to compare it, Nathan, is, you know, I was a 31-year-old managing director, which is like one of the youngest in the firm, you know, seven to 10 years early for that title. A lot of it was related to some like right place at the right time. But so if you looked at me on paper, uh, my LinkedIn profile is very much like uh, I look like a like a like a bodybuilder. Right. To use that metaphor. But I imagine a bodybuilder who has not never stretched in uh, 35 years. And so, yeah, on the outside, like ripping, bulging muscles, looks great. Envy of of lots of people around him. But if he drops something on the floor, like there's a chance he might tear his hamstring, um, and that that was kind of the disconnect between like my outer self and my inner self, and I think a lot of it, a lot of it is attributed to this mindset that that um, you can control outcomes with work, which I don't believe anymore, and then another related. Um, i'm still trying to piece this one together is this belief that for something great to happen to you you have to suffer to get it and that's very much kind of the scarcity mindset i i think it's a i mean definitely it was very i mean it still is to this day with my parents you know um they they're they're self analyzing every you know ten $10 purchase, even though both of their kids are self-sufficient and they have plenty of money to retire. And there, there is that suffering. It's like, no, like this trip isn't good unless we like went in off season and we saved, you know, 20% relative to peak rates or, and things like that. So I definitely had that belief as those two beliefs, the, the belief that you can control outcomes. I just don't believe anymore. Um, i am not resigned to it, but I, I, I know that what I thought I was controlling earlier in my life was actually an illusion of control versus actual control. That would be the first thing. And the second thing that I've abandoned is that scarcity mindset that, that for good things to happen, you have to suffer.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Give me the highlights of your, your finance career and some of the, the things that actually did work Like to get to managing director is pretty impressive. What were some yeah. of the, the things that were you know, some of the tools you used to get to that point?
1: Uh, When you join Wall Street, uh, they usually give you the book The Art of War, and it's this total zero-sum game mindset, and everything is – I mean, it's kind of like – it's like that that macho thing. Like everything is like war analogies, and you, you like command and control, and and you infiltrate this, and you like pillage this, and you you know it's just like it's violent and, and all that. Um, and so when I when I got into finance and this kind of like really masculine, um, really aggressive energy, and I, I was aggressive, but I was like the the, the samurai. It's like I was like. I know how to play this game, but I will never like, show you that I know how to play this game. Um, I, I didn't do anything for like bravado or to, to flaunt or anything like that. But the biggest thing that worked for me on Wall Street was I refused to play the zero-sub game. And I really was very trusting, very helpful, nice, um, I played, I played the long game. I, I, I rooted for other people ahead of myself. Um, let's see, it was very, I've really invested in people and relationships. And, and, you know, wall street is like the rainmakers and the, uh, the Gordon geckos and all that. But relationships are like centered around things that I could do to make someone else, else be this version of themselves, uh, with, with really no expectation in, in return.
0: Can you give me some examples of that? Like, can you make
1: that a little bit more real? Yeah, um, I, w- I would basically do tons and tons of free work for people. Uh, and so if someone was, if a friend was launching, uh, not your a friend, if someone I just randomly met was launching a hedge fund, uh, I would say, you know, send me send me your deck um, and I would completely mark it up, uh, spend hours doing it, send it back to them. I would I would say do you want do you want to do you want me to pretend like I'm an investor and and we can have like a mock meeting and I would do things I would do things like that all the time that would be uh, so that would be one kind of very specific thing
0: so just using the tools in your toolbox and just offering those for free and uh, just investing in that human capital kind of thing
1: absolutely and, and that was like that was human capital but they they were outside of the firm um, I think in, inside the firm. I was uh just an extremely dedicated manager, and i really I believe that that management is when you manage other people manage other people's careers you know they, they spend more waking hours with you than with their spouses yeah. uh, and so it, it, you have to treat them like family you have to love them like family and care about them you know the 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 good the bad, and the challenging and it's a lot of freaking work and a lot of what being a manager was was helping people through breakups through trouble you know and it's like a lot of a lot of my colleagues would say hey that's not my response you know That I'm, I'll teach them how to get their report done but but when so-and-so's crying about a breakup that I, that's not part of my job description it's like y- yes it is like uh it, it, every everything about these individuals lives is part of of your job description as a human at, at the highest level
0: i feel like that's a pretty rare trait though to have that kind of compassion and were you seeing it like hey if i can be a great manager and help these people then i can get promoted or is it just this inner compassion that you have to really care about people
1: Oh, I think that I think I was very trusting that it was the right thing. And even like hearing you frame it that way, if you read any any like Harvard business review, I mean, that's the strategy. Right. But now I think being a genuine, good human being and caring deeply caring unconditionally, you can't fake it. You could fake it for a little while. And and at some point you will get exposed uh, if you don't genuinely mean it. Uh, and once you get exposed, the cost of, of faking it is even worse. Um, you know, something really simple, really, really simple is I always remember kids' names and people are like, Oh, do you, when someone tells you their, the kid's name, do you like go and write it in, you know, in your Blackberry <laughs> at, right after the meeting? And I do have one strategy, which is just a general memor, memorization strategy. So it's like, I'll always remember your name because my best friend's name is Nathaniel. So it's, a, it's like an association strategy, mm-hmm. but really like it, you have to, to remember kids' names, you have to like genuinely like create an image of the child in your head and you know what does little sam like to do he loves to like th- ride his monster trucks in our parking lot in our in our um, garage and then a you have to ask a question b you have to listen to the answer and like genuinely care about the answer and then c you have to visualize it and and when you know the per- person you know that like you see them kind of spring i mean even the most hardened finance guys when this, when you get them talking about their kids, this like a uh, release, um, kind of comes across them. It's like, Oh, like, I, like they come out of their shell. And so, so to answer your, your question though, it just, it's too hard. You just have to care. And maybe, uh, you know, I think I definitely get that from my parents. They're really, really generous and caring and loving, um, people um, but I think it's just, uh, I, I think that one of the things I'm I'm most blessed with is just, I'm just very open and trusting of others, you know, and, and, and so th- that, that tends to work out well for you in the long term. And in terms of managing
0: downwards to the people you're in charge with, in charge of compared to managing upwards, like obviously there was a bit of that to get to managing director. How did you mm-hmm. play that game for want
1: of a better phrase? Yeah. One of my central principles was, was if you have a boss and pretty much everyone has a boss, your central responsibility is to make your boss look good at any cost. And so, you know, people wanted me, people wanted me under them because I went out of my way. And I think that's where my, you know, strategic slash work ethic really kicked in and, and pain threshold um, because that there is just, you know, kind of willing your way, willing your way to the top, uh, being willing to put put in the hard hours. But also, I think people forget they think that because someone's two or three levels of seniority above you that they're they have their shit figured out <laughs> that you know they just kind of coast through life and without like uh the the monkey mind that consumes a 22 year old who just entered the workforce and and the reality the reality is is no like sometimes they have it even it
0: doubles down yeah
1: yeah so, so i think that the that kind of upwards uh upwards empathy and compassion but but i think if, if i'm very blunt it was if the people that are going to promote me win, then there's a good chance that I'll win, and that was really that, that was really uh, the the strategy. And I think I also wrote, it's funny you asked that question. Maybe you you saw some of my recent tweets, but I wrote an article about it today um, that that wouldn't be that you wouldn't have seen because it's not published. That says um, one of the greatest lessons that I learned um, managing upwards was to over communicate, and so I, I had this game. If someone above me ever asked me, hey, where's that thing? And that thing was something they had asked me to do at some point. Um, That was a a shortcoming on my part because I hadn't effectively communicated to them. And so I went. I was very deliberate. This is the article I wrote uh, this morning was every Friday I would send a really brief status update. And it's so simple. Like sounds like anyone could do it, should do it, has done it. But Like, again, the consistency to do that for uh, pretty much 10 straight years, Uh, I still do it. uh, And I have a quasi boss. um, But I don't I don't want anyone to ever ask, where is that thing that that, uh, to be to feel like I'm not uh, holding my end of the bargain? Because I know that I am or at this point in my life, I'm organized and reliable enough to know that I am. But often it's just that communication, that little bit of communication. And if you really evaluate it, it's like there's I'm going to keep coming back to this, but there's the the boss who has the monkey mind. Everyone has a monkey mind and the boss has eight reports and all eight of them have their own different monkey minds. And so how do you create an environment to minimize the uh, infighting amongst the monkeys Right, it's with its deep, deep self-awareness of your own monkey, uh, deep compassion, and understanding of others' suffering and and their monkeys, and then communication to kind of be the the you know smooth pathways that facilitates the communication between um, all the different monkeys.
0: Yeah, it's awesome.
1: I like saying monkey. Yeah, monkey's a good good <laughs> reference. What what is the monkey mind like? How do you how what is it for you? It is. It's evolved a lot. Um, originally, so before I got off the corporate ladder, it was extremely condescending and patronizing. Um, and really kind of, uh, it's funny cause I was criticizing wall street as kind of a management through fear, through war analogies, but that if, you know, if my mind was, you know, the, the, the general and and like me was the slave. So it really was, you, you know, you're never doing enough. Uh, any mistake is, uh, over, uh, blown out of proportion. You're, you're like berated, um, to the point that you're like, you scare yourself into doing, into doing it again. Um, so, so that was, that was a big, big part of, you know, I think I I started the story of kind of the hacker sensibility and learning how to kind of navigate everything through the kind of like work ethic and all that. And, and, And you asked, is that, you know, do you still believe in that or do you still use that? I think that I took that kind of set of skills that I had, but injected it with like the most intense version of like uh, really actually became uh, unhealthy. I think the monkey mind has, I think it's, it's evolved. In fact, I was, you know, right before this, this conversation, I was laying down with my daughter and she's just like, snuggling and super cute. And my wife's in bed too. And I hadn't seen her all day. And all I, all I was thinking about it was just like fucking youtube video that i just made uh (laughs) and i sent i texted three people the link it was like a draft because it was not public and i'm just and i'm like "Ah, yeah this wasn't that good i wonder what person x is gonna think and it's just like why why i mean this is like you know i i did all my work for today i had such a good day working um, you know, I worked out, I had just meditated, I had a beer, I was like laying in bed and like, why is the only thing that I can think of this fucking YouTube video? And so I guess the, the monkey mind now is, um, it's, it's a little, it's, it's definitely, I don't, I'm, I'm not self. Uh, patronizing and and self-critical anymore. I'm, I'm I'm actually very very conscious to not be that way. I think the monkey mind now is is more the craving for some kind of um, validation and just kind of not being able to just. Be present, uh, and you just like there's something else. Something else needs to be happening. You should be doing something else, and so that is that's kind of the monkey mind now, and, and and that part has also always but I feel like at least now, it's not as intense, and 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 I, and I notice it often.
0: Yeah, and I feel like it's this lack of wanting to be vulnerable as well, and, and that's what I hear in your voice. You know, there's those moments of you know we're just sitting and being with your kids or lying down and doing nothing like for a high performer that can be the most vulnerable thing just to yeah put their phone down or stop working and accept the fact that you're not going to be productive yeah <laughs> you know that I, can be that, that that vulnerability is quite scary
1: i think yeah i never thought of it in in vulnerability terms like i i, I come back to it in i know there's we didn't talk about uh, um, fear, but I know for me, there is that fear of, I think there's two fears that are always kind of strong in my head. One is uh, the fear that I'm not going to have any money, um, kind of this poverty mindset. Popular one. And I think, I, I, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I'm, I, made, I made good money on in, in, in Wall Street, you know, definitely not enough to, st- to, not, to not work. Um, but to take some time off to figure it out. And, and I think now, you know, this is, this is now as an entrepreneur who is burning cash each month, but really believes in what he's doing. Um, I feel, you know, that that's where that, that it, it's so bizarre. It's funny when you verbalize these things, they sound so ridiculous. Uh, it's like that, that YouTube video was one strand of my entrepreneurial journey, uh and and if that strand figures itself out and was a success you know whatever that means then it means that i will make some money and then i won't have this fear about like not having any money but i i know that that's just completely flawed reasoning because that youtube video you know whether it was completed last night or in 2 weeks is not the difference between anything Uh, And it really is more that sense of idleness. I think I feel, you used the word vulnerable. I think I felt like if I'm not doing something, I feel like really naked. You know, even if I'm sitting there, I have to be drinking water. It's like, well, you must hydrate at least, (laughs) you know? Um,
0: I think it's like for for high performers or you talked about finance being a very masculine thing. Well, you know, the masculine is to, do and the feminine is to be and so yeah. for someone that's lived in their identity is do and mm-hmm. for them to suddenly just be and know that they're okay mm-hmm. just doing nothing like just being me and just sitting here mm. and enjoying cuddles with my family for for yeah. a, someone that's lived in do that is the most vulnerable thing they can do yeah and yeah. even verbalizing that and going hey i'm putting my phone down and like i'm just feeling really this is really edgy for me just to sit here and do nothing like to yeah. start taking the, the power out of the, 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 the fear. And do you have that? Yeah, that's why I can talk about it like Yeah, this. I think it's, but I spend a lot of time on the phone with high performers, you know, with coaching. Mm-hmm. So it's the trait that I hear most often, as you say. And I kind of, I, I rig it against them a little bit, where I say, I bet you can't just spend an hour doing nothing every night. I bet you can't mm-hmm. do it. And so I use their ambitiousness <laughs> and their, their wanting to do
1: against them and sort of yeah. turn it into a challenge to be. Um, yeah. Do you think that, um, do you think that meditation is a cop out for these high performers? Cause, cause I'm listening to, to your challenge and in, I'm saying, well, I meditate 40 minutes a day. So does that count? <laughs> well, you can turn <laughs> I, meditation
0: into a do, you know, you can, mm-hmm. you can swap it. You can turn yeah. it into a productivity tool, you know, where you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing my meditation. Well, you don't do a meditation. Um, You just sit there and be. So I think it can become a little bit unhealthy. And the other thing you you touched on is like these things are coming from fear. Like we can become very good at pretending they're coming from love. Oh, look, I'm doing a business that I love. Like I'm doing my passion, but secretly we're still coming from fear. So I think keeping acknowledging those things and going, man, am I sitting here and doing this because I'm scared I'm not going to make money? Or is this genuinely,
1: am I genuinely giving my gift? Yeah, no, I think for me, the fear is, I know, I think that was the, that has been the biggest turning point in this personal journey is, is noticing the fear uh, because I never, I never noticed it Um, for like for for 35 years, never noticed it. I I knew like, I knew that I was scared of my own more, like my own death for on and off, but I never really let myself go there. But I was really that that example of kind of these like core, deep existential fears that you like you bury them deep within your soul and you just pray to God you outlive them (laughs) and outrun them before they have a chance to kind of like rear their like unleash their damage and their their suffering upon you.
0: And you have agreement with that, like if most people around you are doing the same thing, so no one's going to
1: argue. With just staying mm-hmm. in that zone. Totally, totally. And, and and that has been um that's been so I mean, I, I remember my coach um when I first saw her two in like two or three years ago, right 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 before I had left, but I had made the decision to leave. And she said, She's like, You're you're talking so fast. <laughs> And and you just like you just brought this energy and it was it was like kind energy, but it was so intense. Um and then you would just talk about like listening to audiobooks on double speed and, and CrossFit and burpees and, and not sleeping and red eyes and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And and um and then she's like, What are, what do you she's like, why do you why why are you in such a rush? And uh and I said to her, "I was like, well, we're all going to die one day, so we better get moving." And just that, like that, that one quip was like, there was a, a, a trailer, you know, like the movie ads, like the 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 still the photos, like that that would be like the tagline for like for me, like running like on a plane or something. It's like <laughs> we're all going to die one day, so we better get moving. Yeah, hurry up!
0: <laughs> yeah, I had a similar experience. Uh, for me it landed slightly different way from my partner I was my my partner's amazing because I'm the do-do-do and he's the BBB so he just Mm -hmm. just, he's the place where I come to land you know like when I come home from a friend Mm -hmm. day I can just be you know so it's it's Mm -hmm. a beautiful um partnership but um, it sometimes well it started off with me kind of going well don't you want to don't you want to live your dream and don't you like don't you have ambitions like don't you want to you know like life is so short like come on you've got to be mm-hmm. doing more doing more and i said um like don't you ever are you ever afraid that you're going to waste your life and he said well how would you know that you've wasted your life and it was like oh shit <laughs> it just for some reason the way he said it, it just uh, it, it hit me really hard that yeah the, the way I live my life I, no one comes to you at the end of your life and says right we've done a review Nathan and yeah. <laughs> we've made the assessment that it was a waste so yeah. um, sorry you know th- th- there is no that that's all an illusion just wasting your life or not wasting it
1: there's just life there's just being you know i um i think a lot about this kind of fear the shadowy influence of of fear uh, especially in, in in males. Um, I was talking to a friend who went to a top three U S business school, uh, and they did an anonymous survey. They asked, um, what do you, what are you most afraid of? And the two, the two answers from this, I mean, this is the, this is the highest performing of the high performing, uh, was I'm afraid of failure, which was not surprising. Uh, And the second was, I'm afraid uh, uh, of being alone. Which I thought, I I was actually more surprised uh, to hear that. But in in this age of, um, you know, I guess in theory, you're in Japan and I'm in New Jersey and we're talking on Skype. In this age of connectivity, um, people feel so alone. I wonder if you've seen... um, in in the types of conversation that you have, what are the common fears that that, that your that your clients surface, obviously, in, in in all general general terms.
0: Yeah, I think um I think those two are tied as well. Like while you were talking, I was like, oh, fear of failure is actually a fear of being alone because if you go deep enough down that chain, it's like, well what if I fail? Well then what would happen? Well then I would have no money mm-hmm. and then what would happen? Well no one would like me. Mm-hmm. And then what would happen? Mm-hmm. Well I'd be alone so mm-hmm. th- they're all they're, those two are kind of tied. so i think yeah a lot of it is just i don't want to be lonely like if you go deep yeah. enough that's what you're going to find every time is mm-hmm. i don't want to be alone or you know especially from high performers have that similar story that you have where they've had parents that have gone work harder do more why aren't you doing more why aren't you working hard enough and so that the unspoken other side of that coin is if you don't work hard enough you'll i won't love you you'll be alone so that's kind of just always sitting there, is that fear of loneliness. So, the most common thing that they say to me is, "Man, like I just don't understand. I've got everything I ever wanted, and yet I feel empty. Like there's an emptiness there. There's a there's this huge part of me that's missing. I've got a wife, I've got kids, I've got this job, I'm earning all this money. What what, what happened? I don't I don't get it. And that's where the process starts, like they're kind of admitting that you're lost in
1: a way." I mean that that's that 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 very much kind of summed up um, summed up where where I was uh, you know a couple of years ago. I mean with with precision. Yeah, it's a little it's a little eerie.
0: <laughs> where did you go? There's a couple of things that you said that'd be great if you could expand on. You said that conversation with that woman, like we're all going to die, like we need to hurry. And I read an article you wrote about that where you said it's the first time you confronted your fear of mortality. So where did you go from there with that? Yeah. Um,
1: God, where did I go?
0: Or are you still in it? I mean, is it still still present for you?
1: It was, I think that it's definitely still present. Um, and I think, you know, earlier I mentioned this illusion of control. And so, you know, I did, I, I think it was in that article, but I, I equated doing really well and CrossFit workouts as a way of fighting mortality. Right. Meaning that if I could, you know, if I could beat, you know, CrossFit's all about competition. If I could beat someone who was 10 years younger than me, then maybe I'm more 10 years younger than them, than I really am, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> than, than, than my, uh, my true age. Um, I think it had to do with I, I think that it has to do with just being in such a secular society uh, combined with the fact that I have uh, kind of an engineering mindset where everything is a problem that's that can be solved if you just try hard enough or if you're smart enough or if you commit enough resources. Um, I think that I started to see the... Um, foolishness of that thinking, uh, or just the flawed nature. I think my logic kind of started to work against me when I, when I was, well, stepping back, the first thing was just recognizing that. And I remember having like weird child nightmares about it. But the funny thing is that when, uh, women often, when I talk about mortality and fears of mortality with, with women, usually it's about, like who's going to take care of my kids or my my husband or like that? There's like that caring element. But yeah. what I feared about my own mortality was that it really um, crystallized my insignificance uh, in kind of a in an infinite universe, like a universe that just goes on in, in perpetuity. And I, and and I remember as a child, I. I I, that was a nightmare that I would wake up from. So it wasn't like the pain of dying or the pain of losing a loved one, the sadness of losing a loved one. And, and those things all scare me. But the thing that really kind of like ripped me uh, apart was that that time would just go on uh, towards infinity. And then everything that I had done, uh, no matter how great, would just be like, pretty much instantly wiped out maybe for you know a few years or something it's like I was and, and yin was and yan
0: about that too isn't it like it's that's simultaneously the most liberating thought yeah
1: yeah it's petrifying I, and liberating that, i guess that shows how we're wired it's like i never thought about it that way <laughs> yeah
0: for you oh. it was just like oh that sucks yeah it's, it's such a
1: bummer like what can, what can we do about it and
0: because well, you're coming you... from this context of suffering as well right where it's like man i'm working so hard and like nothing comes <laughs> without effort and i'm putting all this yeah. effort in and then i
1: just die and i'm forgotten about. Yeah. absolutely and and the thing that that really crystallized it for me is um and really helped me well a just talking about it you you real you know talk about being alone this is this is a conversation that I've had with many, many people now. And at first they're like, dude, why do you just run around talking about mortality with people? <laughs> um, then right after that, it's like, I've never had this conversation with anyone in my life. Um, and, and it goes back to that, that loneliness, right? Can you imagine this? Like, I mean, can you imagine we're, we're living at this kind of society where we're hi- hyper-achieving men and women, uh, I think my hunch is men carry this more intensely, um, are so terrified of their own deaths, and they have no one to talk about it with. Um, And I think it's been, you know, I talk about it a lot. I write about it a lot. That article you mentioned is one of my most shared articles ever. So it, it like touches a nerve with, with, with people.
0: What's the, uh, what's the address of your blog? Just for people that want to check it out while, while you mention it.
1: Oh yeah. It's um, well, that was, that article is on uh, Quartz, uh, which is where, where I published it. So that would be, if you do, if you just search like KHE space Quartz, it will pull up my author page. Um, but my blog is radreads.co and it has similar articles but that specific one was was on quartz. Yeah,
0: I thought as you're talking I was like it's actually a fear of death not just your own mortality but it's like the fear of losing everyone around you like it's really
1: it's way easier not to think about that. Yeah it's it's well so here's what what I what I realized well I I want to come back to that but finishing that the previous thought the thing yeah. that really helped me was and I've only read two chapters of the this book, but is um, the denial of, denial of death by Ernest Becker? Have you read or are no, you familiar? Oh, I've heard of it. It's writing it down. It's, um, it won the Pulitzer in '73, and uh, he he basically says like man's biggest problem is man's biggest greatest gift is that that man with a capital M M is that we have a conscious that we're we're conscious beings. We can kind of see the future and reminisce on the past and, and think about those things, um, but at the same time, we have that ability makes the ability to have the, the conscious makes us uh, have to reconcile the fact that we're going to be gone, and that is so terrifying that we go. We basically the, the way he describes it is we as individuals um feel the need this is the the sentence that really got me is like we feel compelled to live a heroic life um to cement our immortality uh and then he goes on and it's like that's that could be to build the greatest skyscraper write the great great american novel uh leave a family legacy create family legacies and i and i read that this is not this is like the introduction it's not even in the first chapter. And I was like, holy shit, my, that, that is, my whole life has been trying to live, uh, uh, to live a heroic life because of that fear. And whether it was my experience with CrossFit, whether it was my desire to make a lot of money, whether it was even when I left finance originally, I thought I was going to start a venture backed company. So in, in the denial of death, the first chapter, he Becker talks about the fact that what separates humans from animals is is our consciousness, and it's one of the most beautiful things: our ability to be melancholic about the past or to look forward, uh, to look towards the future, whereas an animal is just kind of sitting there thinking about their next meal and their next sleep. Um, but because of that ability, it's also our greatest liability, in the sense that. Um, we predict our, we look out towards our future and we realize that we're going to die. And it is so difficult for us to come to terms with that in his words, and this is what it really got me. He says, because of this fear, we feel compelled to live a heroic life, uh, um, to, to combat, uh, to cement our, our immortality and and uh you know he uses examples of building a skyscraper or a cathedral or writing the great american novel or building a family legacy and i read that and and it's, it's it's so early in the book and i'm like holy shit like that my whole life has been me trying to to live a heroic life whether it was like being the best at crossfit or being an, a managing director or having x amount of money in my bank account or having this size apartment, and and I realized that, and and it was so crystal clear to me. And this this was kind of, not, It took me a while to get to this point, but but once I got there, I was like, wow. And take like a really simple example is that before I left, I wanted to start a venture back to business, and I would I would be that the same jerk that would like laugh at people who wouldn't take red eyes. Uh, I would be the, the guy that's like, I don't want to do a lifestyle business as an entrepreneur. It's like, that's for people who can not cut it, um, as kind of venture backed entrepreneurs. And that's, that's kind of what I thought I was going to do when I left. And, and, and it became like so clear to me right away, like, Oh, only reason I wanted to do a venture, but I didn't even want the money of the said, you know, proposed business if it were to be successful. I just wanted to like, I, I wanted to, that was part of my hero, my heroism, my heroic life. And just seeing how that was infiltrated in, in so many of my decisions and being like, you know what? I actually don't care about living heroic life anymore. and And I, I don't know if I, I'm sure that I'm not being truthful when I say I genuinely don't care about that because I probably wouldn't have been fretting over a YouTube video. Um, but, but I really, I really don't care. You know, and then people ask me, oh, like, you know, you've had this success with like, you know, your work's been quoted on CNN and Bloomberg and like, are you going to double down on it? Are you going to triple down on it? And I'm like, <laughs> they're like you're, ha- you're having a moment now, like you got to capitalize and I'm like, you so know that's what? That's a New I'm just, phrase. To yeah. triple down on your are CNN totally. interview. Mm. Totally. Um And and it, and it's like, no, like, I just I I just love what I'm doing now, and and I didn't want the CNN article. I'm super grateful that it happened. Um, just tell us the title and, of it because it was a perfect title. <laughs> <laughs> you asked it, not me. It's uh, it was meet uh, meet. Me, K, he the Oprah for the millennials. Yeah, pretty cool praise from Seanie. That was pretty. I mean, that's that's awesome. But but again, hand on my heart, I'm a PR machine with no product behind it and no revenue behind (laughs) it. So Um, so I don't. um, I wasn't looking for it. I'm glad it happened, and maybe it will happen again. Maybe it will never happen again. it's just like I'm I'm going to continue to to just do the, the work that I feel really passionate about. And if, you know, if it turns into some multimillion dollar empire, great. But like now call, calling what I'm doing a lifestyle business is like the greatest compliment. And, and, and I feel very unshackled by that, you know, cause people still, they still look at me and they're like, well, like you should be doing something. You should be doing X cause of this press. It's like, no, I'm just like going to keep doing like what I was doing the day before. <laughs> um, and and there is a liberation there. So was, I, I don't even know exactly how we got on this topic, but I feel like they're I, projecting their fears as well.
0: So it's, it's um, you've got to be pretty crystal clear on how you feel to not be influenced by other people projecting their fears
1: onto you. Yes. Just, and, and, and being and clear about how you feel, I think more specifically is, being very attuned to your own fears. Mm. Um, because at the end of the day, so much of the monkey mind, like you said, it's, it is, it's, it's fear-based. Um, and I don't know if those, I, I, I don't know if they'll ever go away. I think that if you notice them, that's the first step. Um, then you can probably have like little ways to kind of talk them down. But I, but I also think that this was another thing that, that I've discovered is that there is no like i was about to ask you you know you as the and, and the the sage it's like does it like do they ever go away but i know the answer to that it's like it's just it's a lifelong practice right it, it, like you you just um you just tend to yourself and every day is you just kind of take it as it is but but because of the the tools and the discerning the discernment and other things like meditation and journaling and and, and fears and all that um you know that you are more equipped each day and it's
0: something i really want to push because i feel like it's not really understood and that's a big part of what i hope this podcast gets across to people is that it doesn't ever stop and it's beautiful and it all lives, all of it lives in awareness, you know, like the, just being aware of your patterns and the the process of discovery is actually where a lot of the joy comes from. Like Mm -hmm. seeing these patterns and no longer being led into them, but just going, Oh man, like there's me obsessing over the YouTube video. Oh, there's that, there's (laughs) that fear of wanting to, you know, be someone creeping up again. Oh, cool. That's interesting. And it doesn't mean maybe you stay looking at your phone in that moment, or maybe it's a, you can put the phone down and go, Oh, I'm just going to be for a little bit with my family. Either way, it's just this constant awareness and growth and, and kind of not taking it too seriously, but making fun of all these things that are floating around. Absolutely. And
1: I think that, that, you know, that's why I want to thank you just even in on, on this podcast, on this conversation that, you know, you, you, you know, commenting on, uh, kind of the vulnerability of, of just being and the comments that, that that your your partner made to you you know those are those are things that will sit with me for three days ten days a year I, I, I don't know but they'll def, they definitely will sit with me beyond this conversation um, and that is that's part of that that practice and so I think one of the the things that's that and this is, this is the work that, you, that that you're doing is creating a space for for the conversations, right? If if, if like that that article about the mortality fears and the, the fact that people joke about it with me, that, that it's my latest obsession, bringing that into a conversation at a bar with people that, that you care about, with people that know that, that you're not like, trying to stoke some weird thing you know that that you're coming from it at a from a place of of vulnerability from a a place of, of having kind of you know like done the work yourself or tried to do the work yourself i think that's that's a beautiful thing to be able to have more of those conversations and and i feel inspired that they're happening more and more but at the same time um, there's some positive selection and kind of like who I've chosen to hang out with at this point in my life that, that I kind of forget the other side.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a vulnerability aspect as well. It's like if there's certain people that you just don't want to bring this, this stuff up with, because you know, well, you have an idea of where it's going to go and there's a potential mm-hmm. that it's going to be awkward. And <laughs> it's a, I, I talked about this on the, one of the podcasts. That's an unspoken rule from my upbringing was we don't do awkward. So just uh, avoid awkwardness at all costs. So yeah. if you bring up, hey, you ever get scared about death? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that, There's a potential that that's going to turn awkward pretty quickly. <laughs> and so don't go there. And so mm-hmm. for me to be aware of that, oh, man, like I really – these are the conversations that really mean something to me, and mm-hmm. I, I hold them back because I don't want to have an awkward conversation. That, mm-hmm. That's my awareness, and I go, man, Like I, I'm sitting here making small talk, and all I want to do is go, oh, my God, Like, don't you find it crazy that we're all going to die, and can't we just talk yeah. about that and just like how yeah. we're doing all this stuff and we're living a certain way because we are going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and just realizing that sometimes I don't push through that. And I'm going, man, I'm really holding myself back here. Yeah. That's the vulnerability for me personally.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think, you know, one thing that's that we've I've heard you say a lot, and I think about it a lot, is this element about not caring what other people think and i think you you frame it in a in in a vulnerability con- context but i think there's there's more to it than 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 just vulnerability and and i can't really grasp what it is i mean i know that some of it is evolutionary you know, if you, by being accepted into a group, like you were protected by that group, so you should try to, to, to do whatever you can to be accepted. But how do you, um, what tools do you have to, to, to stop caring? <laughs> and I think, and I, and I asked this selfishly because I've struggled with it. I, I, I would gladly share my answers as well, but it's the question that I get, it's the number one question that people ask me is oh, how do I interesting. start caring yeah. what other people think?
0: I think the um, just even the phrase is, feels like a bit overused. you know. So maybe like I always think of my job as a coach to ask better questions, so not necessarily just answer your question but to go, is that the right question? And it feels like a little bit overused and a bit simple to go, how do I just – well well, it's impossible (laughs) you know because what does that mean your partner you want to just not give a shit what your partner does it mean your parents no it doesn't mean people it means how do i not i think the question you're asking is how do i how do i share what's important to me without worrying about people that don't really matter giving their opinion about it (laughs) the question is more in that right am i right
1: yeah I, i i guess um, but then there's also the the more, um, the laziness of status, of, of status markers. So, you know, you went to Harvard and you went to, you know, state school. And so by definition, you know, if, if you're in the state school uh, category, you want to f- you feel invalidated because society with, like, gigantic air quotes um, looks highly upon those with Harvard degrees, you know, more so than those with state school degrees. And so the state school person, you know, goes out of their way to prove that they are just as worthy or more worthy, and that is such a, a, an exhausting um, uh, pro- exhausting and, and meaningless um, to to some extent. Yeah, totally.
0: And that's the the thing that comes up for me there is you have to buy into that story. So you have to buy into the story that, oh, I went to a state school, therefore my voice is probably not as worthy as someone that went to an Ivy League college. So, okay, now I have to shout louder or be better than anybody you know you have to buy into that story to come from that place so my experience is and only from doing this over and over and over again but being in the room with powerful people and air quotes um the more that i i notice myself getting small and the more that i go no just put that away and just talk as if this was my best friend the more i give them permission to drop that story does that make sense like we 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 kind of if you let it you can just slip into those roles no problem that's 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 the societal roles but if you put that off to the side and just keep communicating like it might not be trying to think of a good example but say like talking about um this conversation about mortality and death with your ceo might seem like oh that's oh, I can't, I'm, I'm only an employee. How could I have that kind of, that's a really deep conversation to have with a CEO and my CEO. But okay, so that's the context. But if you put that to the side and like you said, hey, this is just a guy with a monkey mind, keep pushing through it and eventually he'll drop the story and then you'll be two humans having a deep conversation. I like that.
1: I think a lot of, have you read Sapiens? You're making By, me feel um, really um not, oh, not well read. <laughs> no, well, well, Becker is like, I, I've only met, three people that have read that book um but but sapiens and and i haven't read sapiens I'm about like a third of the way through it but it's all about the stories that that men mankind has told themselves and and it's just it's so it's such a good book uh but but the stories like currency and religion and liberalism and human rights and corporations and law like then it kind of like, it's like, wow, yeah, like we basically just said that this piece of paper is the difference in, you know, having an amazing life and, and a pretty miserable life. Or or did we, you know, um, let's remember that we all agreed upon that this piece of paper, you know, being currency uh, is is the thing that that, you know, creates a happy life or creates an unhappy life as, as one example. And and especially around the lines of the conversation that we've had. And and yes, to me, it's it's interesting from like an economics perspective and a political perspective, but it's really more interesting to me exactly what you just said. It's like, I don't buy that story anymore. Um, and, and to see that we've like mankind has created this world of like so many stories that have lasted for tens of thousands of years, um it's just really again it's like the denial of death thing it's like oh okay that's why it works this way it's
0: really interesting like for me it's it's quite a personal thing it's I think that's why I can talk about it quite freely is because I went to a good high school but I failed everything like I have no high school and I didn't go to university I went straight to flying school so who am I to be having this conversation with you who am I to be sitting here talking about how to find joy and happiness and connect and be less vulnerable that's always there for me, right? Well, I shouldn't say that. That used to be there for me, um, so I know I know this one very well personally. Um, the, the, one of the, the, the quotes that keeps coming to me, my my best friend Callum, he sends me a, sort of a long email, you know, about what's going on for, with him and his life, sort of once every couple of weeks. It's one of my favorite favorite parts of my month. And he's got a quote at the bottom of every email that says death is super embarrassing to the ego because the ego, this, this idea that of control, you, you kind of touched on it. It's like I can, if I work hard enough, I can control my circumstances. That's coming from the ego. The ego believes they can control everything. And so when you die,
1: it's so embarrassing for the ego. I, and I think a lot about that in the, um, and, and I used to be of this mindset, but you know, all the Silicon Valley, um, You know, I just read this article, uh, uh, Silicon Valley thinks that they can beat death in this lifetime. And and it's just like I I used to, I I read that because I used to read those and be like, yes, like someone's fighting the good fight uh, on my behalf. Uh, And then now I read that and I was like, I just want to hug everyone that's in that. (laughs) It's going to be okay. (laughs) Again, it's like a weird avoidance of
0: vulnerability it's a it's a way to avoid ever having the conversation about mortality um which is it's kind of bizarre in a way like i, I love science but yeah it's, it's all a, it's a, it's now we've just got more sophisticated tools to avoid feeling vulnerable. Vulnerable. i could keep talking for hours i hope you'll come back on the show and continue the conversation uh for sure is there anything you mentioned uh website radreads.co you're also uh you call it the writer in residence at courts
1: entrepreneur in residence, entrepreneur residence yeah
0: yeah cool so they can find you there is there anything else uh you want people to reach out to you obviously uh there'll be
1: people oh. that relate to your story and want to get in touch what's the best way to find you absolutely um for people to sign up for the the email newsletter which is over at radreads.co the other fun thing that that uh i do is i have kind of a daily mini vlog on Snapchat, which is also uh, rad reads. Um, and, and that's really, it's been a, an amazing, because the Snapchat, I mean, I'm almost 38 years old, and the average Snapchat age, if I did guess, is probably 24 or 23 and so it's a really interesting forum to have i mean it's a straight up intergenerational conversation um, because i'm on the i'm i'm squarely planted in gen x uh, and they're squarely uh, kind of at the cusp of gen z and millennials and um, and it's just a fun it's a fun medium to to have conversations they don't obviously get this deep but i talk a lot about this all highlights of this uh once it comes out on on snapchat so that would be another place and then the last place is uh twitter and instagram where my handle is uh my full name k-h-e-m-a-r-i-d-h i love twitter good way to have a conversation as well i guess totally yeah although i have um i have a seven minute daily limit on my twitter usage i guess wow. i get Kicked off, so it's harder. I had to do it after the election because it's just the rabbit hole of just of just stuff. Um, so, so I'm a little less conversational on Twitter these days. But maybe if the political uh, noise ever subsides, I will. I would gladly jump back into Twitter because I, I really do love Twitter as a medium, as a network.
0: Awesome. We'll, we'll put all the links in the the show notes so uh, people can find you easily. And the last question I always ask everybody, it's a crowd favorite, uh, and it's about um, your dark side, whatever your perception is of that. But it's, again, in the vein of talking about things that we don't normally talk about. The dark side is one that we like to keep hidden and not show anyone. So do you mm. feel like you have a dark side and is there a way that you
1: embrace it? I, well, I think there's two. One is that I am very emotionally hardened at times. And so I um, – and I think that's been part of this kind of self-sufficiency, self-reliance mindset. So I I, I can probably – I have a very warm personality, but I guess I still have that defense mechanism of being like emotionally detached to, as a protective mechanism. That would probably be one of them. And I think the other – How do you be, embrace it? How do you –
0: like is it just about having awareness or yeah do you channel it in certain times like obviously that can have its benefits
1: i think that it 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 comes back to fear and so it it is it is that fear uh it is very much that kind of childhood fear of abandonment and acceptance and it's and it's very much like i don't i don't need anyone i got like i got myself and and i'll always be able um to kind of fend for myself um and so i don't embrace it because i think that at this at at this point in my life especially after all this like i know why it's there and why why i act that way and and i think if i would like there to not be a disconnect between kind of a very warm and caring person on the outside and someone that's uh, like emotionally hardened, that's kind of like, I don't need you. I don't need anyone because I can always fend for myself, which is at its root like like a fear defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. The other one uh, is one that I've done a lot of, that I've really uh, made strides on, but I, I, I used to be, and still am to a lesser extent, very judgmental. Uh, and again, it comes back to that self, that self-reliance. Um, and and it was like this, this protective cocoon that I built for myself and these skills of, of persistence and dedication and drive. Um, there is, I guess there's an, I didn't realize it until I'm verbalizing it now, but there is an ego to it. That's like, these are hard things to have like learned or developed. And, and I know that a lot of people can't develop them. And so it's like, I feel good about myself (laughs) and judgmental for those who, towards those who haven't been able to, but then I just laugh at myself and it's like that it's a little bit like your, your partner asking you about knowing, uh, asking you the question about wasting, having wasted your life. It's like, maybe the, maybe the joke's on me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> uh,
0: yeah it's interesting isn't it that, that uh, i know that one very well myself and it's uh yeah again it, it's a it's a barrier to connection it is a barrier to connection when you're in that judgmental space um but yeah for it's, it's it's a tough one it's very present well it's been amazing man I, I just have loved this conversation it's been one of my favorites so thanks for being so open and thanks for being willing to go deep into the murky waters of existence
1: i appreciate it hey there's there's nothing more fun on a one tuesday night at 9 40 p.m <laughs> exactly where would you rather be awesome well thank you uh I, the, the, the privilege is mine i look forward to, to having many more yeah i
0: appreciate it thanks for that well, there you have it folks uh, i hope you enjoyed that conversation with k he's a wonderful guy and i really enjoyed that conversation it felt so interesting to me and He's just a really, really interesting, fascinating guy. Go and check him out uh, on his blog at radreads.co. And I'll be back next week for episode number 22 of the Nathan Seaward Show.
1: That was the Nathan Seaward Show. Personal conversations with powerful men.